Amen. You may be seated. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I want to encourage you to open them to 1 Samuel 28. 1 Samuel 28. If you've read ahead, you're probably wondering, what in the world are we going to do with this? Same question I've been asking all week. So we're about to find out. Um, find out together. 1 Samuel 28, as you're finding your place in God's Word, I want to welcome those who are joining us via our live stream. I know we have many who are joining us in that way. I'm grateful. Last night, um, Pastor Luke Polly filled in for me. I was doing a wedding over in Lee's Summit uh, for Ben and Nina Cole and over there and uh, did their wedding. And I, as I left yesterday afternoon after the wedding, uh, Ben said, well, we'll be watching live stream in the morning. I said, Ben, you probably ought to just sleep in, brother, all right? Um, but Ben, if you're watching, we're glad you're with us. But, uh, and the venue service down the hall, Reach Church DeSoto, grateful uh, for each and every one of you. Well, 1 Samuel 28, um, very pertinent song that, that we just sang earlier. Uh, when you don't know what to do, it says a lot about you, says a lot about who you are and your spiritual condition based on what you do when your back is against the wall. How do you respond when your back's against the wall? And probably more specifically, how do you react, how do you respond when you're rebuked? How do you respond when you experience conviction and you experience rebuke? Last week when we left off, we left off with David on the verge of fighting Israelites. That's a bad deal. That's a scary place. And I don't think David has any clue what he's going to do. But then we stop and God presses pause on the narrative and we switch to something else and we're going to look to Saul because, because there's, something, there's something more serious than David fighting Israelites and that's Saul fighting God. Listen to me this morning, there's something more serious than you fighting with the world against the church. And that's you standing in opposition to God. So God says, we're going to press pause on that. We're going to deal with this. So with that in mind, let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then we'll work, work our way through this text. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to be in your word this morning. I pray that you would guide our time. Lord, I, I truly believe you have something for all of us in this text. And so, Lord, I pray right now in the quietness of this room that each and every one of us would begin to prepare our hearts to hear from you. Lord, help us to put aside anything that would distract us from hearing your voice today. And Lord, let us think primarily of ourselves. Let us not think that this message is for somebody else or that we would never be found in the condition of a soul. Lord, give us the ability to evaluate our lives that we might not ever go down this path. Lord, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to pick up in verse 3 because we addressed the first two verses of 28 last week. But look at verse 3. Now Samuel was dead and all Israel had lamented him and buried him in Ramah, his own city. And Saul had removed from the land those who were mediums and spiritists. 
Uh, we first see there a summary, a recap. We've already heard this, that Samuel is past. Samuel is gone. And then we receive this news that Saul had removed uh, from the land those who are mediums and spiritists. And uh, Saul doing that was a very wonderful thing. In accordance with God's word, these practices uh, of the occult were prohibited amongst the people of God. Leviticus speaks of this, Deuteronomy speaks of this, and so he, he eliminates, probably very young in his reign, had in, in, in obedience to God's word, had, had removed these kind of practices from the land, and, and we find out a little later why that information is important. Then look in verse four, it says, so the Philistines gathered together and came and camped in Shunem, and Saul gathered all Israel together, and they camped in Gilboa. Verse five, when Saul saw the camp of the Philistines, he was afraid, and his heart trembled greatly. Saul uh, here uh, becomes very afraid, very scared. In fact, if you you read the story more and more in Saul's life, he's marked by fear. In this situation, he's afraid of the Philistines. They've gathered, uh, but this is not unusual. They were they were in constant battle, it seems, with the, with the Philistines. What's the difference here? I think the difference here uh, pertains to how they've encamped, uh, the status of their army, maybe the geographic location. Something about this has him exceedingly alarmed. Not only this, but I think there's an element that, that adds to the apprehension knowing that David is now with the Philistines. He's been aware, he's been made aware that David has gone over to King Achish and now David is with them and that probably brings an even greater apprehension. But what is Saul's ultimate fear in this? His ultimate fear is death. That is what he fears in this situation the most, his physical death. And we need to understand as as believers in Jesus Christ, as believers in the one true God and and faith in his Messiah, Jesus Christ, we are to be a people who are not afraid of death. Doesn't mean that we go looking for it. But death doesn't frighten us because we know God. You want a good picture of this? In Psalm 16, David writes that psalm while he is facing death. And he says, my heart is glad and my glory rejoices and my flesh will also dwell securely for you will not abandon my soul to shield nor will you allow your holy one to undergo decay. We know he was speaking of Christ according to Peter and Paul, but David was trusting God and you and I as believers in Jesus Christ, we're, we're not to be a people who are fearful of death. Saul here is afraid, he's afraid of physical death. And so it says in verse six, when, when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him either by dreams or by Urim or by prophets. So Saul inquires of the Lord. And he's inquiring of the Lord because he wants to know the plan. He wants to know what God's going to do. And I think in many ways he wants to see if he can't manipulate God to change the plan because I believe that Saul knows exactly what's going to happen. But he wants to know the plan. He wants to know the details. And and this is something that's so interesting. We're going to see this more and more as we move through this. Saul never really wanted God. He wanted the gifts that God might give him. And I think one of the marks of true maturity in our faith in Christ is that 
we grow and grow more and more to a place where we care less about the gifts that God gives and more about just having God himself. And so Saul is afraid of physical death and he wants to know the plans, but there's no real earnest seeking after God. So he inquires, though, by traditional means and there's no voice from God. God has turned off the spigot. That's why we learn Samuel's dead. Samuel was the primary means by which Saul would hear from God in his life and that means is gone. The fact of the matter is, Saul never listened to Samuel when he was alive. Not sure why he'd want to listen to him now. Not only that, but it says, uh, did not answer him by dreams. It was commonplace for kings to have dreams in those days. God's not speaking to him that way, though. Not speaking to him by Urim. That would have been the priestly job. The priest would have had the Urim and the Thummim, and, and they would have used that as a means by which to discern, they would discern the will of God. But what happened to the priests? Saul killed them, except for one who's now gone over to David. There's no priests. No prophets, there's one prophet, Gad, and now who, he's, who is he with? He's with David. And I want you to understand it's not as though God is inaccessible to, to Saul, but I think the picture is more that Saul has cut himself off from God in his sin and in his disobedience. Saul has been a man who has repeatedly demonstrated that he will not listen to God. He has heard from God before, but he never listened. He, he walked in sin and disobedience. And this is very scary. This is a warning to all of us this morning. Listen, if you stop listening to God, God might just stop speaking to you. If you get to a place where you're walking in sin and disobedience so much, and you ignore the word of God and the voice of God in your life, you can get to a place where God stops speaking to you. You better not presume upon God that he'll be speaking to you tomorrow. Saul just kept walking in sin and disobedience, and then he comes to a moment where he's in a panic, never really pursuing a relationship with God, but only wanting a genie in a bottle. Saul really, to me, depicts a man who didn't want a savior. He wanted a servant. We need to understand something very clearly this morning. We don't use God. God uses us. We are servants. He's the master. Saul wanted a savior, but he didn't want a Lord. And he's already demonstrated that in his disobedience. And God says, you and I have been cut off. So we can't hear from God, and, but the situation's still bad. He needs help, so he can't hear from God in a normal means, so let's try an alternative means. Let, let's go a different route. And so look at verse seven, then Saul said to his servant, seek for me a woman who is a medium that I may go to her and inquire of her. And his servant said to him, behold, there's a woman who is a medium at Endor. So Saul says, and he knows, listen, this is the, the reason why uh, God gave us the information earlier. Saul had put out the mediums and the spiritists because he knew that those practices were prohibited to the people of God. 
He knows. This is called sin with a high hand, according to the Old This means he knows what God says. So he snubs his nose at God and says, I'm going to do whatever I want to do. Well, you talk about a dangerous place to be. And so he looks at his guy and says, fine for me. What's interesting to me is how quickly they're able to say, somebody right down the road. I would have been a little better if they had said, hey, you saw, you know, you kicked these people out. It's going to take us a little time. No, we got somebody. Evidently, Saul had been zealous about this earlier, and he'd become very slack in it later. And now they appear to be everywhere. You can just go right down the corner and find one. So in verse 8, Saul disguised himself by putting on other clothes and went, he and, the, and two men with him, and they came to the woman by night. One of the things you'll see in this chapter is a lot is occurring by night under the cover of darkness. Why would he do it at night? Because he knows what he is doing is wrong. Goes by night and they came to the woman by night and he said, conjure up for me please and, and bring up for me whom I shall name you. But the woman said to him, behold, you know what Saul has done how he has cut off those who are mediums and spiritists from the land. Why are you then laying a snare for my life to, to bring about my death? So this woman is rebuking him by means of his own decree. This is wrong. And she begin, begins to get very concerned. This is an FBI sting operation. You're trying to catch, I'm no dummy. People like you coming in the night, that, it's a tip-off to me, something not right here. She's concerned. It's interesting, the more you read this, you consider this woman a witch, I, I'm not quite sure that's, I think that's not too far. But in so many ways, the woman's gonna come off looking better than Saul. This is wrong, what are you doing? I feel like you're laying a trap for me and I'm gonna be the next one that they got kicked out because I was exposed. Well, look at what Saul says. Verse 10, Saul vowed to her by the Lord, saying, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come upon you for this thing. The last time that Saul will use, this is the covenantal personal name of God, Yahweh. Last time Saul will ever use the name Yahweh, he will take that name in vain. He will swear by the Lord's name in defense of his sinful activities. king of Israel consulting witch and taking the Lord's name in vain to defend himself and his sinful activity. The woman said verse 11 whom shall I bring up for you? He said bring up Samuel for me. When the woman saw Samuel, she cried out with loud voice, and the woman spoke to Saul, saying, Why have you deceived me, for you are Saul? Now, I, it's so interesting. We have to be very, very careful here. All this week, um, last week, uh, my curiosity gets the best of me. And we have to be very, very careful in this that we don't start... Uh, digging into minute details that are unimportant to the overall theme and 
purpose of the chapter. Some of this God doesn't make plain to us. But she sees something that gives her indication that this man in front of me is King Saul. In my study, she's going to bring up Samuel. And uh, <laughs> you're probably wondering, well, was it Samuel? Who was it? Was it a demon? Was it Samuel? I, can I just tell you, I have no clue. I tend to think it was Samuel. It's my personal belief. But I don't really know for sure. And, and having read a lot, those guys don't know either. But she sees something here. And by the way, let me stop and just say this about mediums and spiritists, what we would call the occult. It is apparent to me in Scripture that these things are, they are labeled evil, they are labeled pagan, and they are prohibited to the people of God. God says to his people, you do not engage in these kind of activities. This is prohibited. You know what, what I realize? Never does scripture say that it's not real. Pagan, it's evil, you don't get involved, but God doesn't tell us it's not real. There's a realm of spiritual activity out there that we know not of. And an area, I believe, of the demonic that God says, don't you dabble in that. Don't you get involved. And so... Samuel is, has, I guess, Samuel there. It's what my interpretation is. She realizes in some way, shape, or form that this is Saul. Why have you deceived me? Verse 13, the king said to her, do not be afraid, but what do you see? And the woman said to Saul, I see a divine being. It's an unusual term. A divine being coming up out of the earth. I believe she cries out. I, I believe that she, even with this description that she sees something it's apparent that this lady engages in this activity quite some time. In fact, she's very confident. Just tell me who you want to bring up. I'll go ahead and bring that person up for you. I mean, just kind of nonchalant. It's alarming. But then she sees a divine being. And uh, she's terribly frightened. I've not seen this before. And whatever you want to say about this, I believe God in his grace is going to open the door unto Saul to hear his voice one more time. Regardless of how you take this being, whether you take it to be Samuel, God will proclaim his word through Samuel. If you take it to be a demon, can God speak his words through demons? You bet he can. God can speak in whatever way he chooses. But he's going to, Saul has shut himself off from the word of God in his sin and disobedience. So in so many ways, Saul can't get to God, but can God still get to Saul if he wants to? You bet he can. And so God, God is gonna open the door in some way so that Saul can hear an affirmation of the word that he's already proclaimed. Verse 14, he said to her, what is his form? And she said, an old man is coming up, he's wrapped with a robe, and you remember what really marked Saul was his robe. Um, even as a child, it was his mom who, at Hannah, would bring him a robe. And 
And Saul knew that it was Samuel, and he bowed with his face to the ground and did homage. And then Samuel said to Saul, why have you disturbed me by bringing me up? You know why I think it's Samuel? Because that sounds like Samuel. <laughs> He's irritated. What, why, are you, why are you disturbing me, Saul? What are, you, what are you doing here? And Saul answered, I'm greatly distressed, for the Philistines are waging war against me, and God has departed from me and no longer answers me, either through prophets or by dreams. Therefore, I've called to you that you may make known to me what I should do. I'm in a bad spot. I need some help. Verse 16, Samuel said, why then do you ask me since the Lord has departed from you and has become your adversary? Why do you want me? You, you rejected me and more than that, you rejected God. Why all of a sudden you want to hear from me now? You never listened to me before in your rejection of God. Why would you want God now? Verse 17, the Lord has done according as he spoke through me. For the Lord has torn the kingdom out of your hand and given it to your neighbor, David. Samuel says to Saul, God is doing what he said he would do. That's what is so interesting to me. Saul wants to know the plans. He doesn't really want to know the will of God. He knows the will of God. But he wants to try to find a way around the will of God to do his own purposes. It's interesting to me, so many people, they want to know the will of God, and they'll say to you, well, I need to pray about that. Really what they're doing is procrastinating on what they know God's already told them to do. God's word is pretty, God's will is pretty plain in his word if you want to know it. But Saul doesn't want God and he doesn't want to know his will. He wants God to do what he wants him to do. Verse 18, as you did not obey the Lord and did not ex ex execute his fierce wrath on Amalek, so the Lord has done this thing to you this day. You remember when he didn't, uh, he didn't destroy the Amalekites? He didn't wipe them out? He left some? And he said, I'm going to leave it because I'm going to worship to God and offer him his sacrifices. He says, Samuel, calm down. It's no big deal. You remember what Samuel said to him? Oh, it is a big deal. Because he said, rebellion is as divination. You don't think there was a warning there? Saul, you keep going down this path. You're going to end up in the area of demonic. And that's exactly where Saul finds himself. Verse 19, moreover, the Lord will also uh, give over Israel along with you into the hands of the Philistines. Therefore, tomorrow you and your sons will be with me. Indeed, the Lord will give over the army of Israel into the hands of the Philistines. Verse 20, then Saul immediately fell full length upon the ground and was very afraid because of the words of Samuel. Also, there was no strength in him, for he had eaten no food all day and all night. Now, I want to stop here for just a moment because there's something I think we, we clearly need to see uh, about Saul. Saul, at this moment, he falls with his face to the ground. I, I think in Saul's life, at this moment, there's a deep sense of regret in the path that he has chosen. In fact, I would say to you that there's probably some tears that are shed in this moment, knowing that the word of the Lord has been confirmed. God's not changed his mind. What is going to happen is what, what God said would happen, and you're going to die, and the kingdom's going to be handed to somebody else, and your sons are going to die. And now in this position, he regrets what he has done. He is sorrowful over what he has done. But what we're going to see moving forward is there is no change. 
He continues to be who he is. I want you to look at something very briefly. I think we've got some time. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 7. I just want you to see this very clearly. I think this is an important principle we need to understand. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul has written to the Corinthians a letter that we don't have. And it was a letter of rebuke. Uh, Paul has called them out in their sin. And it sounds as though we, we don't have it. We don't know exactly, but we can, uh, we can make some implications based on how Paul writes to them. But it must have been a very harsh letter calling them out in their sin. And he has called them out in their sin and rebuked them. And what he says in chapter 7 is, I'm really worried about how you're going to respond to my rebuke. It's important to know this, that, that Paul didn't just send out rebukes haphazardly with no heart. He did so with the heart of a parent. A parents, when we rebuke our children, we, we worry, how are they gonna respond? To my rebuke, to calling them out and their activity or their actions, how are they gonna respond? And we worry about those things. Are they gonna continue on in stubbornness and continue on a path or are they gonna change? And so Paul is waiting. Remember Titus, it's not till Titus, he gets, in fact, he moves closer because he wants to hear from Titus. He wants to know how they respond. And he's actually very grateful because they were sorrowful, but, but their sorrow led to repentance. And so look with me at verse 10. For the sorrow, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, for the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a repentance without regret leading to salvation, but the sorrow of the world produces death. I think this is so important for us to see as we, we look at Saul's life to be reminded that there's a lot of people that are sorrowful over their sin. A lot of people who, who shed tears over their sin. Sorrow and crying over sin is commonplace. I'll tell you what's uncommon is sorrow that leads to repentance. And what, what, what Paul is saying here is there's a sorrow that leads to death. And there's a sorrow and a grief that leads to life. And I think it's really important that we know the difference. If it, if it pertains to our eternal de destination, we better understand clearly what Paul's saying there. And I think what he's saying is this. Godly sorrow, know this. Godly sorrow over sin is always God-focused. I'll give you quick, three quick things. Sorrow, godly sorrow that leads to repentance is always God-focused. Meaning the primary desire of my heart when I am confronted with sin in my life is not my circumstances. It's not even other people. My primary concern when sin is revealed in my life is my relationship to God. It's the heart that says, God, I don't really, I don't really care the consequences. I just can't lose you. Godly sorrow takes us to God and to his throne and helps us to realize we've sinned against the holy God. And we've broken the heart of a father who loves us. And it moves us to say, God, as David would say in Psalm 51, you can take everything, you take all my life, but don't take your Holy Spirit. So is that the desire of your heart today? So many people, they're just, they're just upset about the circumstances over their sin. They're, they're, they're upset over what has caused them or the consequences, but they have no real concern over God. Godly sorrow that leads to repentance is always God-focused. Secondly, know this, godly sorrow that leads to repentance always involves transformation and change. 
It always leads to transformation and change. See, worldly sorrow says, oh, it's a pitiful situation I'm in. Godly sorrow says, I must change. God, by your spirit, I must change. I don't want to go down this path of sin and rebellion against you. I don't want to hurt your heart anymore, God. I want to, I want to walk in fellowship with you. I want to walk in, in union with you. So I'm willing to do whatever it takes to change. Whatever it takes. Meaning that, that, that godly sorrow gets practical. It gets practical and it gets specific. Listen to me, the Holy Spirit of God is specific. If you pray and you ask, God will get specific with you. The Holy Spirit of God will give you specific actions and activities that you need to eliminate from your life or change. Primarily, a godly repentance will lead you to a place of reading God's word and spending time in prayer if that's not a regular occurrence in your life. But it will lead to practical change. The Satan is the one who will say, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're guilty. That's Satan. God says, Here's where you need to change. Daughter, son, here's the activities to remove. And the Holy Spirit of God has ways of getting very specific in your life. But it always wants an urgent change. There's a sense of urgency. And then finally, godly sorrow, godly repentance. It, it, it brings about a desire for reconciliation in every relationship of our life. And it goes in that order, folks, because until you have repented of your sin before God, you're not ready to be reconciled with other people. See, this relationship right here, the vertical relationship with God, it affects the horizontal relationships of, of life, and it always starts with the vertical relationship with God. Now, if I'm out of tune here, it's an indicator I need to go there. And then once I've gone there, then I go here. But it always works itself out that way. And so it seeks to restore relationships that have bro been broken due to the sinful activity that was engaged in. And we never sin another, unto ourselves, do we? Sin always affects other people. We see this in Scripture. In the Old Testament, Pharaoh. Pharaoh knew sorrow. In fact, when the, when the plagues came upon the people, he repented. It says he did. He regretted. And he was sorrowful until what? Until the plagues went away. He went right back to his old activity. Never led to repentance, never led. Esau, carnal man, traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. Carnal man, later on, he regretted it. In fact, the author of Hebrews tells you in Hebrews chapter 12, I think verse seven, don't be like Esau. Uh, it says that he traded his birthright for a bowl of stew, and later regretted it. But God rejected him because he made no room for repentance. And you know what it says then? Even though he sought for it with tears. He cried a lot. But he never repented. Um, we're going to talk about it in just a minute, but Judas, never repentance. What do you see in Peter, though? Peter, he denied Christ, locks eyes with Christ. And it says he ran off and wept bitterly. But Peter pursued Christ and found him on a shore and three times affirmed his love for him. And God said, feed my sheep. There was change. There was transformation. Saul, no transformation. 
Look back over, 1 Samuel, flipping pages this morning. Really quickly, we gotta wrap this up. Verse 21, very odd, it ends with a meal. The woman came to Saul and saw that he was terrified and said to him, behold, your maidservant has obeyed you and I've taken my life in my hand and have listened to your words which you spoke to me. So now also, please listen to the voice of your maidservant. Let, the, let, a, let me set a piece of bread before you that you may eat and have strength when you go on your way. But he refused and said, I'll not eat. However, his servants together with the woman urged him and he listened to them. Isn't that interesting? He wouldn't listen to Samuel, wouldn't listen to God. Listen to these evil folks. So he rose from the ground and sat on the bed. Such a sad picture. Verse 24, the woman had a fattened calf in the house and she quickly slaughtered it and she took flour and kneaded it and baked unleavened bread from it. She brought it before Saul and his servants and they ate and then they arose and went away that night. Story ends with a meal. It is Saul's last supper. This is Saul's last night, his last supper. And it reminds us of another last supper. In fact, you'll see there they take unleavened bread. And we remember the, the last supper that we remember when we part participate in the Lord's Supper of Communion. And so it was at the last supper with Jesus. So it, it is here. At the last supper, you remember the devil was there. You remember Satan entered into the heart of Judas and just as it was there when Judas, you remember he had eaten the morsel, he went out, you know what it says, he went out into the night. The Bible's final description of Saul is the same final description of Judas. They went out into the night. You remember Saul, we're gonna read it. Uh, Saul is gonna go on and he will commit suicide. Judas will go out into the night and he will regret his sin. Oh, make no mistake about it. I'm sure he shed some tears. But never repents and he too will commit suicide. Both regret, neither will know repentance. And it was night. It's a sad way to end this chapter. Very sad. sad. Uh, and, and I'm here to tell you, this morning, I have absolutely no reason or evidence, not one shred of evidence that this man saw on the last night of his life has any credible faith. I mean, listen, as I was really saying, it's so scary because Saul was associated with the people of God. Saul had some brief moments of external religiosity. He was gifted. He, he was somewhat useful, but no repentance, no godly sorrow that led him to genuine, genuine repentance towards God, no evidence of any real change, just persistent disobedience and therefore no real evidence of faith and salvation. I may be wrong, but I can give you no hope. It's very scary. I need, just briefly, bear with me. So I was praying through this. I, please. Just give me, we got five minutes. Don't, don't leave. I mean that, don't leave, listen. This is incredibly important. This is the message of Saul to your heart today. This may be the best chance you will ever have to determine and settle where you will spend eternity. Saul goes off hopeless and abandoned. 
And I believe that it's an, it, it's an eternal night of separation from God and a, an eternal night of judgment by God. And that is my fear for some of you. You have heard before. God has been calling you to repentance and faith, but you have walked away. You've put your fingers in your ear and you've continued down a path of sin. You've put it off and maybe you have some regrets over the consequences of sin in your life. You may have shed some tears, but you've never really dealt with God. You've never had a real change and a genuine heart of repentance and I'm warning you today, if you, if you put it off again, if you put it off today, you're in danger also of walking off into your night of eternal separation from God. You stop listening to God, he may stop speaking to you, and more importantly, if you reject God, he will reject you. And the question is, is there any hope? Here's the only hope I can give you today. That there, there is someone who also went away into the night. He went away in a midday night. You remember as he hung on the cross the middle of the day, the sun went dark. And Jesus went into a dark. He went into a dark night of separation. He will cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because I believe, as most commentators do, there's that moment that Christ took your sins and he bore the penalty for your sins. He knew separation of God because he was buried your sin. He who knew no sin became sin that we might become the righteousness of God. He enters into the night of separation from God and the judgment of God for your sins. He went into that night, listen to me, he went into that night so that you would never have to go into the night of Saul. He went into that night so that you could know the light of salvation. And what I want us to do right now, I want everybody to bow their heads and their close their eyes. Everybody in the room, venue service, reach Church DeSoto, right where you're at. Every head bowed, every eye closed. No distractions for this moment. I promise we won't be here long, but all of us need to think of ourselves right now. All of us need to do some serious evaluation. And I'm asking you today, with, with no one else in the room, you need to recognize today, it's an audience of one. Just you and God, right now where you're at. And I'm asking you, where are you at today? Where will you spend eternity? And on what basis do you make that claim? Have you ever experienced the depth of your sin? Have you ever experienced godly sorrow that led to true repentance, a godly sorrow that led you to Jesus where you placed your faith and your hope in him, where you were born again? I'm asking you to evaluate your life right now. You need to make a decision. Are you going to plug your ears and again, turn away from the conviction of God and continue in a path of rebellion? I promise you that is a path that leads to destruction. It's an eternal night of separation. This moment right now is the best opportunity you will ever have to settle the issue of where you will spend eternity. 
Secondly, right now where you're seated, I'm asking all of us, is there an area of your life where you need to repent? Martin Luther put the 95 Theses on the door of the church in Wittenberg. The very first of those theses says, when Jesus said repent, he meant that the whole of the Christian life should be marked by repentance. We don't just repent at the moment of salvation, but our life is marked by humility and repentance. Is there an area of your life where you need to repent? You've had sorrow over this area, but never really taken it to God. You've felt bad about it. You have not enjoyed the consequences You've never repented. You've never changed. I'm asking you, make today the day. You and God, an audience of one. No one else. Don't think about other people. Don't think about your circumstances. Just you and God. And by the spirit and grace of God, determine your heart to change. Practical change. For the unbeliever, for those who don't know Christ, to change and go a new direction. You're going to follow Christ. You'd say to him today, I'm not just asking you to be my savior, I'm asking you to be my Lord. Submitting to your, to your authority, an area of repentance, I'm laying it down today. I'm confessing it before you, I'm calling it what it is, I'm changing my mind, and I'm changing my life by your spirit and your power so that I can walk a new way. Father, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your forgiveness that's new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Lord, I pray if there's somebody here that's hearing your voice, a voice of conviction, maybe for the very first time, I pray that as the author of Hebrews said, they would not harden their hearts, but they would listen and turn in faith and repentance. God, for those of us that do know you, Show us our sin. Not so that our lives can get better, but show us our sin because all we want is you. We don't want anything in our life that separates us from you. We'd rather have Jesus. Whatever sin is in our life, I'd rather have Christ. we lay it down today asking you to help us change and we pray this in Christ's name Amen